Welcome to Inside the Economy with SHNJ. Presented by Larry Howes of Sharky, Howes, and Jaber. Learn more about Sharky, Howes, and Jaber at shwj.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. A quick look at the numbers for this week. We have uh, not a lot of excitement, a slight creep up in uh, unemployment to 4.8. Not much in the growth area here. Crude oil is struggling to stay in the low 50s. It has had a great week and gone up almost half a percentage point to 53.8. Euro's stable. The short end of the yield curve, the uh, 13-week T-bill in LIBOR, are slowly creeping up in anticipation of a couple of rate increases here in 2017. The rest of the yield curve, everything a little longer, has actually uh, recovered a little bit. There's, again, we're going to talk about inflation a bit today, but there, we don't have a lot of driving forces here to force these rates up. The uh, On a side note here, 2016 is a great year for General Motors. Uh, about a $12 billion pre-tax profit, so they net about 9.4. Given that United Auto Workers owns, depends on who you ask, somewhere between 9 and 12% of GM, uh, that's about $12,000 each to the 52,000 members. Interesting move to buy all that GM stock if you were running the UAW in 2008. It's paying off pretty well. Uh, And towards the end of the presentation today, I'm going to talk more about trade. And there's a lot of discussion about NAFTA and globalization in the media. I will remind everyone the United States economy does not rely on trade. It's about 16% of our total GDP. The globalization concept is much more beneficial to those who are trading partners. Uh, United States, eh, like I said, it's 16% of our GDP. In the euro, it's 69%. UK, 38 And uh, the trade with Mexico and the U.S. alone is 50% of GDP for Mexico. Uh, much, much bigger, more important numbers. Uh, our three largest partners, Canada, China, and Mexico. And that's 43% of all of our trade, just between those three. Uh, more of that a little later. Here we are on the job market. We are still trying to a- approach full employment. We're not quite there yet. It is a, it's going to be a rationale for some tax breaks, both corporate and individual, probably. If we're at full employment, then the economy can contribute more to federal revenues if everyone has a job. That's the argument, anyway. Uh, question, what's the definition of hard, of jobs hard to get? Those are people that are waiting more than 11 weeks for a specific job, quote, jobs hard to get. Now, I don't know, I can't tell you whether that's a job at Burger King or CEO at Honeywell, but it's one of the DOL statistics. Uh, as a trend indicator, it continues to creep down. The other side of the consumer, and we've talked about this and will continue, obviously the, the splurge in auto buying that we've had the last three years is starting to cool. Inventories are building. 
and the revolving consumer credit numbers have become flat, that's fewer and fewer auto loans. This used to be driven in some respects by student loans. That has faded, even though that's still the only area that's growing. The big numbers is in autos. The non-revolving, which fundamentally to everyone means a mortgage, continues to creep down. Very little inflation pressure there. Uh, this is retail trade. The, the sloping line there, I think it's a brown line from here. That is the one area that continues to have inflation pressures. That's food services and that's bars and restaurants. Ladies and gentlemen, they continue to move forward. Retail trade in general and retail and food services, that's grocery stores and uh, more retail-oriented food places other than restaurants, clearly have disinflation in them, as well as this little area, non-store retail. This is non-store and electronic shopping down considerably. Some of this has been replaced by uh, online retailers, but this is pricing. Pricing pressures are down. Looking for inflation pressures, the only thing we have out there right now is a little bit of wage push, and that has eased. On the other side of the coin, rates rising to slow the economy down, which is the reason you increase rates. This is the latest Congressional Budget Office numbers for January. They're assuming in another couple of years that uh, the 10-year will be about three and a half. That's one percentage point from where it is today. We're about 2.4, so they're thinking three and a half, at least two years down the road. So when you hear the expression, oh, we got 100 basis points coming in the future, that's what they're talking about. Uh, today, I wouldn't bet the farm on that. Uh, I think we'll get some rate increases here in 2017. They are going to need a lot more inherent inflation pressure to continue that phrase, but... We'll see. This is actually the important one. Kind of a confusing slide. I apologize for that. But uh, I don't want to bore you with the calculation of potential GDP. It's mind-numbing. But our growth in GDP since 2010 has been pretty good and is now right on its potential line. Going forward, it's reasonable, and I quite agree with the fact that the slope going forward is about 1.7, under 2% growth in GDP. That doesn't suggest that we're going to have 2% inflation. That suggests a little less than that, one and a half, one and a quarter. And we're kind of on our growth path. Uh, Bank of Atlanta, Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, has got GDP coming in about two and a half so far in 2017. If they raise rates, every time they raise rates, they'll cut 40 basis points out of that GDP number. So, again, long-term, slow growth, low inflation. There's going to be an increase in rates. On the outside, I'd say in four or five years, if mortgages are at four and a half today, three years out the outside, they'd be at five and a half. And I'd say that's kind of a push. I want to talk about Europe here for a minute, which is really getting a lot of press. 
Uh, Europe had some great news come out saying how things are going well and they've got their inflation back. Well, their core inflation has uh, popped up a little bit. It's always been kind of volatile. It's popped up to 1%. Core is still trending down. It's at about 80 basis points. And the quantitative easing program for the European Central Bank is actually running out of steam because they're running out of things to buy. There's not enough debt to buy, certainly long-term debt. So the shorter-term debt the European Central Bank buys, the less impact it has to stimulate buying and activity. More on that in a minute. Unemployment rate, and this is generally the Eurozone's version of a U4, they're still 9.5, 9.6. And the accuracy of this number, I say, is a little bit questionable because there's a lot of people, specifically immigrants, uh, that's about 1.2 in Germany alone, that aren't here. I don't know how they're being accounted for. This is just known contributors or participants in the online social security systems in Europe. France, Germany, all have online systems for what we would call unemployment. They're not getting a lot of pressure to hire new people. Bank lending, which is a, a sign that you'd like to think that the uh, quantitative easing program is doing a lot of stimulus. Eh, it's really not. Bank lending is still kind of flat. Uh, they are not anticipating higher interest rates in the near future, so there really isn't a lot of stimulation to go out and borrow money now. Here's probably why. Here's the basic debt burden of the consumers. The white at the very bottom is the basic euro area debt spent of disposable income. Well, it's a relatively low number. It's about 94%. Well, the disposable income in the euro area is relatively low. It's smaller than that of the UK, which is at the top. And it still amazes me that the UK consumers spend and borrow the extent that they have, but they continue to do so. The US, as a percentage, is creeping down. We're not at uh, euro area levels yet, but, well, that's just sort of the trend right now. Last week, we talked about the Federal Reserve balance sheets, about $4.8 trillion. Well, here's the European Central Bank's balance sheet. It's about $3.6 trillion on a much, much smaller economy. They are accumulating uh, huge amounts of debt. Their possibility of rolling this stuff off, which we talked about a little bit a couple of weeks ago, is well down the road. Today, I couldn't tell you how they're going to pay this off. Uh, and the German taxpayer is probably not going to make a contribution to this. Uh, we'll see how uh, the European growth happens towards the remainder of the year. Now, let me get back to trade here for just a second. The, uh, when you hear about the term trade deficit, and these are our trading partners we have deficits, deficits with, China far and away being the largest one. It's about 370 billion. Germany, Japan, and Mexico are the, are the three following. They're basically benefiting with trade in the United States to that extent. Uh, Mexico 
gets a lot more dollars in than they send out pesos. Same with Japan. Clearly, Germany does. But there isn't a number two compared to China. There's a lot of uh, screaming from these people that there might be some injury and you don't want to hurt the global economy by uh, trade barriers, so on and so forth. What they mean to say is don't hurt our economy by limiting trade with the United States. That's not political. That's simply the way the numbers flow. So uh, right now, the stock markets are doing well, and we'll be watching Europe closely. Thank you.